This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same-game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year, automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply. At the Home Depot, we improve things. This holiday season, we've improved Black Friday. Instead of one day of crazy, we've lowered prices now and they'll stay low all season. From decorations to dishwashers, wreaths to ratchet sets. So sleep in. You're not going to miss Black Friday. Not one little bit. Black Friday improved. The best prices of the year already here at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. U.S. only while supplies last. See store for details. You know what I want? Media day takeaways, underlying narratives, and the bad faith discussions on analytics. This is the Raptors Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Samson Folk, and joining me today is my colleague at Raptors Republic, Anthony Doyle. How are you doing today, man? I'm doing good. How about yourself, Samson? I'm doing great. We talked a bit before the podcast got started. A bit of discomfort on both of our ends with the weather. Mind you, it's both extremes. Are the Raptors the one good thing? outside of the general consensus of life what how's how's the season making you feel going forward this is a weird season for me because like being a raptors fan has always come with a certain amount of anxiety and like just so much uncertainty about how is the team going to do how are they going to deal with past failures how are they going to live up to expectations and there's kind of none of that this season because first of all we're the champions so you know, we we fulfilled everything last season. And second of all, Kawhi leaving kind of took a lot of the expectations off of this season too. And so it it's weird to f- go into a season feeling like there's almost no outcome that would feel terrible this year. And I I don't really know how to handle that as a fan. <laughs> I think I'm I'm glad you brought that up, and I hadn't really put that to words, but that seems to be the take and i think it's the correct one is there's this you feel content and as a raptors fan is that not the most alien thing you've felt so far <laughs> like i don't understand how to to come to terms with it but you're you're exactly correct it's you know we we won last year Kawhi left so there's no reasonable expectation to win the chip or to defend the title it's not like the mavericks and you know we can just kind of enjoy the you know ragtag crew of Siakam, Lowry, Gasol, and Anobi, with media day just happening. I'll ask you since we're talking about good things. What was your number one takeaway from media day? I was a little surprised that 
the summer brought a lot of expectation on Pascal Siakam and a lot of people talking around the league about how good he is. I mean, a lot of sites just did their top 100 player rankings because we have nothing to fill the time during the summer. And uh, he got ranked really high. Like ESPN had him 22nd, I believe. And so with that, I almost expected the Raptors to sort of take a step back and say, you know, we don't want to put too much on his shoulders just to try to take a little bit of that pressure off because he's definitely the centerpiece of the team this year. And they didn't do that at all. <laughs> if anything, Masai and Nick Nurse and some of his teammates, the things they were saying about Pascal Siakam is like, we expect him to take another leap this year. And that was really interesting to me as well as Siakam welcoming that because I mean, if they expect that from him and if they're okay with setting that expectation for, for him, then I'm just excited to see what, what they've seen behind closed doors. I've had this conversation with a few people. I'm interested to get your take on it. If we are projecting, and they are projecting, and he is projecting a leap, what is the leap? Obviously, it's different to a lot of people, but what is the leap to you? The next step for him... I think is just having a little bit of a pull up game because he's, he's got such a great first step. He's such a quick decision maker on offense, but guys don't really ex respect him aside from him driving to the paint or shooting those corner jumpers above the break. He's not an, ex he's not a respected shooter. And in the mid range teams aren't really worried about him. And if he can sort of develop the expectation in defenders, that he can pull up from the elbow on his drives instead of having to go to the rim every time, that really changes the way you have to defend him. And I saw a little bit from some of the workout videos that were out there this year that he was working on that, and I think that could be a really big deal for him because, like I said, he's so quick and he's so de decisive that if that's in the defender's mind, that makes it a lot easier for him to get to the rim too. Does any player come to mind when you're thinking of that kind of fits Pascal Siakam's profile, even though I know he's really unique, that has had to incorporate a mid-range jumper at this point in their career. Does anyone come to mind for you? I always find these discussions about Pascal's development curve difficult because most guys we get coming into the NBA nowadays, they've spent like, you know, six to ten years in AAU circuits and things like that. So their skill set is even if they have a lot of room to grow, their skill set is pretty developed and we know what they will or won't do. It's just a matter of how well they do it and, you know, sort of improving on the micro level. A lot of NBA players don't make leaps on the macro level because they've developed to that point already when they're coming into the league. And Pascal kind of throws all that out because his basketball development was so far behind his physical development when he came into the league. And that... I mean, to answer your question, no, I can't really think of a guy who was developing those type of skills at this point in his career when he's already a borderline all-star. That just doesn't seem normal, but here he is. I think, no, that's definitely the response. The 10, 15 minutes I was trying to think before the podcast started, who is the comp, at least in this very small part of Pascal's career? And it doesn't seem like there is one. And not to mention the fact that He's kind of awkward when pulling up and negotiating the mid-range. Like, we'll see those 
He'll finish while standing on his left leg and his right knee will be up as he's kind of floating forward. Sometimes he just does like this really long push shot and he shoots those pretty well, but it just seems like the footwork and the motion for a mid-range pull-up seems kind of difficult and for good reason. It's really tough to work that into your game, not only for pickup, but to be used against NBA defenses. And so I was wondering, like, do you have a take on that? And maybe to swing that conversation, what are people expecting of Norm? I know you read some of the comments. I read some of the comments on Twitter, the site, whatever it is. There seems to be an expectation of Norman Powell to take maybe a bit of a leap this year to handle the offense better, to be more controlled with his tempo and his decision-making. You're talking about a guy, Norm, who did have the six to ten years of basketball experience prior that Pascal didn't have. You think that the the improvements he'll have are going to be micro or macro? I don't think that Norm needs to make macro improvements. I think Norm's got a few small little issues with his game that he's had over the last couple of years that have really held him back. Um, he really likes to play at full speed and doesn't... He gets caught up in playing at full speed and won't slow down, and that kind of gets him into trouble, and that's something he needs to work on. But I'll say when I was looking at the numbers to sort of prepare myself for this season, one thing that caught me by surprise is how good Norman Powell has been over the last two seasons when he's on the floor with Kyle Lowry. And I think the difference in effective field goal percentage for him is like he's he shoots 12% better when Kyle Lowry is on the floor than when he's not. And I don't know if that's he's more confident when he's playing with Kyle, if that's just, you know, Kyle's ability to find everybody in the right places to get their shots. I don't know what it is, but it's definitely a trend that's been there that they play well together. And if you assume, like I think I do, that Norm is going to be the starting two this year, then that should really benefit the team because that puts Norm in a position where not just he can succeed because you know, Kyle is good at putting guys in place to succeed, but he has succeeded in the past. I'll, I'll offer my take, and if, if I'm missing anything, feel free to correct me or interject. I think my take on Norman Powell is that, like you alluded to, he plays at full speed, which in college, in high school, and sometimes in the NBA, he's such an athlete. Like, he's an immensely gifted athlete that his full speed sometimes is just too much for defenses to contend with. You imagine those times where he drives the baseline and he gets to the rim before the rotation even gets there. And then sometimes the Raptors, they urge him to be a creator, and that means the backside of the defense gets to track him while the the front side of the the defense tries to keep up with him. And that means if he's not changing speeds, he's not kind of vexing the backside defense. So when he plays with Kyle Lowry, as you alluded to, and plays so much better... I think he gets to attack just the backside of the defense more often, and that's where just playing one speed and thinking against the Bucks, all the two times they played each other in the playoffs, when he just gets to attack from the corner and shoot threes in the corner, and his game is very linear and it's just very simple. He doesn't have to negotiate in the pick and roll or anything like that. I think that's why there's the collinearity with success with Kyle Lowry. What do you think? I agree with all of that. I, I, I mean, the bench kind of had this issue last year where both Norm 
and Fred Van Vliet are both guys who are better playing off another creator. And when you ask them to create the bench offense, neither one of them kind of fit the role they were being asked to play in that group. So that's why, you know, the bench kind of struggled. But then you put Fred with Kyle and, you know, Fred's play took off. You put Norm with Kyle and Norm's play took off. And yeah, part of that's just Kyle Lowry, but part of that's also they fit better in that role. And I think, you know, the Raptors are going to benefit. A lot of guys on the Raptors are going to benefit from that this year, not just with Kyle, but with a full season of Mark Gasol and with more time to adapt to his game. These guys who need to play off another creator, they have two of the best shot creators in the league when they're creating for other guys playing with them. So that gives them a lot of space to find their comfort zone. I guess let's follow that line of thinking then towards the bench this year. If it is Gasol and Lowry, who both project as starters, I think, in my mind, in your mind as well, how are the Raptors going to tackle long offensive droughts coming with bench units? Is there a lot of staggering? And how, like, how long does the staggering work in a full season with you know, guys who are not at advanced ages, but they're a bit older in the league, Kyle Lowry and Marcus Gasol? That's definitely a concern of mine. Um, I think the Raptors offense is absolutely going to have nights this season where the offense is going to look bad, especially the bench groups. I do think there's some small reasons for optimism with the bench. I think Chris Boucher is going to step in and he's, he's a guy who can contribute offensively, who can space the floor, who can score in bunches as we've seen, you know, in the, in the G league. Um, and we've seen some guys with the Raptors transition that from the G League to the main club. But also, I think Terrence Davis might be a guy who they'll look to, to contribute, and he might be a guy who can step in and help a little bit with the bench offense this year. He's a better player than going undrafted. Um, not just looking at what he did in Summer League, but a lot of draft Twitter guys who I talked to, a lot of guys who spend a lot of time watching college ball and looking at the numbers behind it. They had Terrence Davis as a first round pick on talent, but he was an older guy and the draft skews always skews towards younger talent. And uh, there's a perception among some that he didn't want to be a second round draft pick. And that's part of the reason he wasn't drafted in the second round is that he wanted the chance to prove himself. He wanted the chance to say, I'm going to go for the guaranteed contract of going undrafted and then proving to a team that I can make it. And I think he's a guy who can create some shots for that offense. He might be able to step in, but also the Raptors are going to give a lot of guys shots to contribute in those wing spots off the bench where it's really uncertain who's playing there. You know, Rondé Hellas Jefferson and Stanley Johnson have both started in this league and they've both given teams some good minutes even if they have some downsides neither of them is an efficient scorer and you know matt thomas might be the greatest shooter of all time if you read raptors twitter so that can't (laughs) hurt the terrence davis the people who liked him i'm assuming this is the same group of people who like brandon clark yep the same people who like brandon clark and grant williams and a lot of them are the same people who really liked, you know, Fred Van Vliet and Pascal Siakam a couple years ago. The the numbers 
you know, you're going to miss sometimes with the draft. The draft is hard to, to hit. But also, guys who can just play basketball tend to be able to play basketball at different levels. And Terrence Davis looks like a guy who can just play basketball. That's apt. I think that makes sense. And like you alluded to, maybe it's not that there's an immediate fix that the Raptors have in mind. But like you said, is they're going to give a lot of guys opportunities. And like what happens with a lot of rebuilding teams, the starting lineup for the Raptors isn't necessarily a rebuilding starting lineup. But the bench is an opportunity for a lot of players to try and grow and step up and ameliorate to a point where they can help you know, help out the bench. So I like that you pointed that out. Is there something that hasn't been picked up on that you think looms large for the coming season? Something that hasn't really been covered so far? Um, I think... I, I really wonder sort of about the period between December 15th and the trade deadline. Because the Raptors schedule is very backloaded this year. They've got a really a much easier first couple months and then it gets harder as the season goes. So there's a chance that they run out to a really good record that isn't necessarily indicative of who they are as a team, especially since they have a lot of talent who, you know, knows what they're doing, especially in that starting group. And those guys are going to get out and they're going to play well and they might just win a lot of games early in the season. But that if they do Raptors management is still going to have to look at what are our chances of winning a title, because that's Masai's goal. And how do we take this group there? And I think you have a season right now where there's a lot of teams that think of themselves as title contenders. And anytime that's the case, it's a good time to be a seller. And the Raptors have these three veterans on expiring contracts. Kyle Lowry, Mark Gasol, and Serge Ibaka. And just to be clear, I'm not advocating for trading any of those guys. But I do think it's it's going to be important for the Raptors to be aware that if a trade comes in that looks like a clear win for them, they, uh, they might have to make that move. Masai is going to... This is going to be a season where the Raptors are going to probably be pretty good, but he also has to take a long-term approach with this season. I think that's a good point you bring up, especially as far as a lot of teams, maybe the Miami Heat, every year for the past four years have been fooling themselves into what a team could be based on stretches during the season. And I'm actually really glad that you brought that up because it's probably going to be really tough for the Raptors to try and figure out what the team is if they have kind of this this super hot start that's built on a pretty light schedule. And could you imagine keeping everybody with the intention of running it back to some degree, except the second half of the schedule really punches you in the teeth, and what do you do there? Do you think Masai Ujiri, what are the chances that he's swindled by that? I'm imagining it's not zero, right? Yeah, it's definitely not zero. And I, I think the everybody's going to talk about Kyle Lowry, and I think there was some indication they want to keep him around for legacy reasons, which makes a lot of sense to me, and I'm totally on board with that. I think the name to watch is going to be Mark Gasol, especially if the Philadelphia 76ers take off this season. If they are as good as I think they might be, that makes Mark, Mark Gasol a really valuable trade asset. Because, you know, there's if you think you're going to have to go through the Sixers in the playoffs, what's more valuable to you than a center who is already 
run that gauntlet with Joel Embiid, gone seven games with him, and held his own. As much as Lowry has those legacy reasons to keep him around, the Raptors, you know, we like Mark Gasol. We don't have that long-term attachment with him. Well, also another really big one, too, is I imagine there's a couple teams out in the West that are eyeing up Jokic and simultaneously looking at Marcus Saul for maybe a Jokic matchup as well. I think, like you said, Marcus Saul, depending on how the 76ers and the Nuggets both pan out, he could be a really, really hot name on the market come that time. And depending on you know how dominant an Embiid or a Jokic might be, it could demand quite a bit more. And I guess that, that takes me into... It's not really Raptor-centric because I don't expect the Raptors to be your pick for the finals. And I suspect you might have the same finals pick as me, but I do kind of want a finals prediction from you. I was asked this on on Twitter recently, and I said I think it's the Philadelphia 76ers. Yes. First of all, that team is going to be, they're going to be monstrous defensively this year. Like, they added Al Horford to a defense that already has Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons they are going to be so hard to score on when they, when they have their starting lineup in. And they're going to find enough offense. I know there's a lot of people saying, well, how do they find shooting and things like that? And those are real concerns. But also, there's too much talent for them not to figure it out. Joel Embiid is one of the best players in basketball right now. Ben Simmons is really good despite all the you know stuff about his, him, him and sh- not shooting. And Al Horford is one of the best glue guys in the game. They're going to figure it out. But also, the other thing I like about the Philadelphia 76ers is, I think they can figure out how to make one trade this season if they need to. And I think that's really valuable, too. So I I just think there's that. And then the teams I, I figure are most likely to come out of the Western Conference match up really badly with Philadelphia. When you look at the Lakers and the Clippers and, uh, you know, the Utah Jazz... I don't love the way any of those teams match up with the, the Sixers. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And like, even if they don't make a trade this year and they go into the playoffs with the defense that you pointed out should be monstrous and very intimidating to score against. Not only did they add Horford, but they also added a very athletic Josh Richardson on the wing as well, who will be in the same spot on defense, presumably as... J.J. Redick, which is another big step up there, at least on that end. And I'm just imagining and envisioning a series where a team can't score against the 76ers because of their sheer size, and Embiid is just plowing through the team on the other end. And it might not be the prettiest thing, but there is this kind of inevitability about Embiid's offense. And I think you're right. I don't know about Utah, the Clippers, or the Lakers— who would be able to stop that? Because if the defense holds up for the 76ers, I think there is an, an inevitability to the talent on the 76ers being able to outscore what their defense holds people to. So I'm, I'm very happy that you and I have the same take on that. Of the three, though, who, who would you pick between Utah, Lakers, Clippers, or Denver, whoever? Oh, I like Denver as well. I... I feel like it's going to be the Clippers, but I don't feel comfortable picking them because I think in the... I have concerns about them in the regular season. I have concerns about how they manage Paul George's health and Kawhi's health, and they don't really have 
natural playmakers on that team. And all of these concerns are going to play out during the regular season when they're going to have nights where they struggle a little bit to find consistent offense, I think. And then the playoffs are going to hit, and it's Paul George and it's Kawhi and, you know, Lou Williams coming off the bench. And that's going to be a lot for anybody to deal with in a playoff series. And I think a lot of the concerns with them are just going to go away when you have Paul George and Kawhi Leonard to take away game, take over games. I think so, too. What do you think the chances are that the Clippers' regular season is something like Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, in and out of the lineup, and the Lou Williams-Montrez Harrell pick-and-roll is the lifeblood until they get to the playoffs and everything sorts itself out? Or do you think they'll have better luck this year? I don't, th- I don't think they should try to push those guys too hard because I don't, I wouldn't want to try to push those guys to win a lot of regular season games and then find out they run out of steam during the playoffs. And Kawhi, it kind of goes, people forget because he was so good in so many games during the playoffs that in the Bucks series and in the Warriors series, there kind of were a couple games where he looked like he was running out of steam. Absolutely. And, you know, I I love Kawhi Leonard for what he did for the Raptors. I worry if there really is an expectation that he's going to play like 75 games and then still have a playoff run in him because it that quad did not look like it was going away last season. It, it definitely hung around and there, like there was this superhuman aspect to his performances. But like you pointed out, there was a there was a wall he hit, and I think that was evident to everybody watching. Like the levels he hit against the 76ers, thinking of that step back three over Joel Embiid, and the LeBron James in the 2015 Finals on off type of numbers with the Raptors. That changed a lot. By the time the Raptors ended up winning the championship, the importance of Kyle Lowry to the team had grown so much from the Philly series where he was, he was obviously a lot better in the Golden State series than he was in the Philly series. And Kawhi wasn't to the level he was in the Philly series that, that he was in the finals. It was just, he, he hit a wall for sure. And I wonder, like you said, if there is an expectation that he's going to play most of the regular season in a difficult Western Conference and then go through the whole Western Conference and into the finals and then, you know, go pound for pound against a very gritty either Bucks or Philly team. It's, it's, it's interesting for Kawhi and the Clippers this year, especially since Paul George is already out for at least uh, October. Yeah, at least the first week, uh, six or seven games of the season is what they're saying. So that's, uh, that's off to a tough start already. And I, I like this Clippers team. I really hope they're good. I hope all the success for Kawhi in the future. But... I have some questions there, but I still trust them, I think, more than any team, any other team in the West. Because yeah. the Lakers, I don't trust them defensively. Um, Utah, I want to believe, but I just can't get there. And Denver, I think they still need to improve the roster around Jokic a little bit. Is it the Mike Conley and Donovan Mitchell can't beat... Paul George and Kawhi Leonard at the end of the game because that's my trepidation with the Utah pick I think yeah that's that's really a lot of it is I I just I don't think their top end talent is as good as the Clippers top end talent and I 
I think if that, those two teams face each other, both teams are going to have really good defenses. But I trust the Clippers to find answers more than I trust the Jazz to find answers. Moving on to something else, and I want to talk about something before we get into the the KD thing. But KD alluded to the idea that you don't watch basketball or haven't been around it for very long. So I want to ask you, what got you into basketball personally? I was just a sports fan as a young kid. Like, I grew up on hockey, but once the... Once the Raptors and Grizzlies came into the league, I kind of started to really want to be interested in basketball. So I started watching a lot of Raptors games. It was because up here in the NWT, our TV coverage is always a little bit weird because we don't get catered TV up here. It was sometimes easier to watch Raptors games than Grizzlies games, especially since the Grizzlies were a complete train wreck and the Raptors weren't quite as bad. Um, And... So I just kind of started following the Raptors. But it was it was a casual thing up until about 1999. And then as a high school student, I got sick. Um, it took about a year and a half for them to figure out what was going on. They eventually figured out it was Crohn's disease. But during that year and a half, I was, wasn't attending school. I was sick all the time. And I was just kind of like killing a lot of time. So... I started to follow basketball more closely and because I was just spending a lot of time on the couch or in bed. I watched a lot of Raptors during that period, and that was also when Vince Carter exploded. And then I went when I went back to high school, we moved to southern Alberta, and I was really socially awkward at that point. I hadn't been in school for a year. I didn't know anybody... I was still dealing with the health stuff. I just didn't connect with anybody in the school in the new school that I was in. And I was there for a year. And it was pretty hard because I didn't have those social connections. So I found one way for me to kind of connect with some of the people around me was to be a part of the ba- the high school basketball team. So I joined. I made the team even though I had, you know, been sick for a year. And I end up doing some of the things like helping out with the team and uh, helping out the coaching staff with stuff. But I also played and that became my way to connect with people. And, you know, leaving high school, it kind of stayed that way. It was my way to connect with people socially. And that was what really made me a diehard basketball fan is it. And since then it's just kind of carried with me and that, you know, led into some tougher Raptors years, but, it was still there and it was still, it still helped me with that stuff. And I just, I'm always kind of grateful that I had basketball during that period because otherwise I don't really know how I would have figured out building those social connections. That's wow. That's a, that's a, a brilliant answer, honestly. And I'm, I'm wondering as somebody who's used basketball as a means to create social connections and, foster friendships and things of that nature how do you feel about the way that it's grown in recent years it's i mean for me it's been about three or four years that i've really been investing into doing writing and being a part of basketball twitter and it's it's kind of incredible that there is this community out there where you can just join and be a part of it and have these in-depth conversations about all different aspects of the game with people from all around the world and you 
you can learn so much if you open yourself up to it, but also you can make some real connections with people, and that is incredible. And I know basketball Twitter and NBA Twitter, they get a lot of crap because there's sometimes where it's pretty rough. But I think if you give yourself the chance, you can really not just educate yourself, but also meet some pretty great people there. And moving on to the the next part of this then, and, you know, it's kind of a microcosm of a small part of NBA Twitter is the the needless jabs, the very the very petty type of, I guess, existence that it can be sometimes. There was a conversation about Kobe Bryant being ranked lower than Steph Curry on the top 50 list by Andy Bailey that came out um, through Bleacher Report. I, what was Kobe, 14 or 15? Kobe was 14th, yeah. 14, and Steph was 11th. Yep. Yeah, okay. And Andy, obviously, was going to war with the Kobe stands in his mentions. You tried to alleviate some of that by coming in and saying, hey, this is what a shot is worth. This is why it makes sense to have Curry shooting the ball instead of Kobe and alluding to you know Steph Curry's prowess as a scorer and stating that, you know, it's better than Kobe's prowess as a scorer. And what I mean by like bad faith is that people just want to come into your mentions and ad hominem like KD did to you. And for those listening, <laughs> Kevin Durant actually was in Anthony's mentions and didn't like that Anthony was making the point of, hey, Steph shoots the ball a lot better than Kobe. This might mean he's a better scorer. So KD alluded to the fact that Anthony maybe hasn't watched basketball very long, which is why I wanted the background of how long you've been watching it. And I just want you to have like a platform to explain your stance on why Curry is a better scorer than Kobe in your eyes. Well, I think this conversation gets really... This is really connected to the analytics eye test debate to me. Right. Because analytics kind of wants to say that, you know, a shot is worth two points or a shot is worth three points and all two-point shots are equal and all three-point shots are equal. But when you... When you watch basketball, there's the temptation to say that, you know, when somebody backs down a guy in the post, turns around over their shoulder, launches a two-point shot that just barely gets over the outstretched hand, and hits that shot, that that's better than an uncontested layup or, or something like that. And I understand that because I understand that aesthetically... We get into basketball for watching those kind of things, watching the dunks in traffic, the incredible athletic feats, but it really is still two points. And nobody hits that tougher shot at an incredibly efficient rate. Nobody in NBA history has. Sometimes you take those shots because that's what the defense is offering you, but those aren't the shots you want. And on the other hand, nobody is better at the shots that you want than Steph Curry. Because we can calculate the value of a shot, and we can calculate, you know, when you take a corner three, that's better than an above-the-break three, because on average, guys hit those at a higher clip. When you take a layup, that's better than a mid-range jumper, because guys hit those better. So the difference ends up being how often can you get a shot you want, and how often do you have to take a shot you don't want, and... For your roster, what's the difference in value of those shots? So the response 
would be, and I think it'd be a better response and stance to take if you were, say, a Joe Johnson fan rather than a Kobe fan, would be to say, Steph can't score late in the game when you have to resort to shots that aren't the first option and he's not good at the other shots. Now, why this is rich coming from Kobe stands would be that Kobe statistically has not been very good at those shots either. I mean, he gets his shots, but he's not hitting a lot of them. But do you think that's a fair shot back? And then how do you weigh, you know, the first three and a half quarters of the game where Steph is scoring out of his mind? And then, you know, an honest inability from Steph sometimes to be able to get the shots he wants to late in games. And then where Kobe just takes the same shots all game and sometimes he hits at the end of the game. How do you weigh that? Well, I was going to go to the first three and a half quarter thing yeah. myself. <laughs> yeah. Because when we talk about these things, there's a general assumption that, you know, hitting shots at the end of the game is more valuable. But that's just not statistically true. Because in order to be in a tight situation at the end of the game, the what happened in those first, you know, 80 to 90 possessions of the game has to have been that the game stayed close. You have to have both teams ending up at the same point total. Well, if you simply outscore your opponent during those first 80 to 90 possessions, that last second shot scenario never materializes. You eliminated it. Because two points in the fourth quarter is the same value as two points in the first quarter. So when we talk about clutch scores, I often wonder, like, why? How do? You, how would you go about calculating how often a player scores so well that their team avoided a clutch situation? Because Run that's stoppers, right? That type of thing. Exactly. That's the same thing, right? If you if you came through with a third quarter run that made it so your team never had to play a close end of game scenario, isn't that the same value as winning the game in the clutch? It's it gets you the win. Yeah, it's definitely, so I think the conversation, the retort would be that defense is better in fourth quarters, and whether that's true or not, and to what degree that's true, definitely debatable. And then, secondly, I think that there is a general sense from most casual fans that they just think games stay close until the end without anything, without looking at why the reasons are, right? Like, that NBA games are close until the end, and then the better team decides the game at the end. But, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into both teams keeping the game close. They're trying to win the whole game. But I think there's this idea that the game will be close, and then it sits in the balance of a star player. But I think that takes for granted, you know, like you alluded to, the first 80 to 90 possessions of the game. And I, I think that's where the disconnect is, that people don't appreciate, for example, in that, in that Bucks game, a Kawhi Leonard you know, 10-0 run in the third quarter when they're down by 14 is just as mammoth as if there were three minutes left. You know what I mean? Like, the game is in the balance at all times. Well, exactly. And the funny thing to me here is, if you ask a lot of those fans, what was the best NBA Finals of the last five years? They'll say the 2016 finals, and they'll, you know, talk about that Kyrie shot at the end of Game 7. Which forgets the fact that the first six games of that series were blowouts. Like, 
the first six games of that series was one team blowing out the other team. Because that's also, you know, a path to getting wins that matter. So you had the series that's looked at as, you know, this great NBA Finals. Six games of the series never came down to that shot, and then the seventh game did. And Kyrie hit a brilliant shot, and Steph didn't come through against Kevin Love. But that's not the story of the series. That's the story of that moment. And I think just like that, in a basketball game, when you take the story of the last second shot, we should also talk about how you get to that moment. Because, you know, if you're down one with 20 seconds on the shot clock in a game... Well, that means that in the first 47 minutes and 40 seconds of that game, if you either improve your defense enough that the other team scores two less points, or you simply score two more points, you're up by one. And you have 100 possessions or something like that to get those two extra points. So why why do we have such a narrow focus? And I, I haven't quite mastered how to figure out explaining that to people who see it the other way. Because I do understand that you know, there's some value in hitting those shots, but I think there's also a lot of value in not being there. Yeah, and well, that's that's exactly it. And maybe to to cap it off for this this conversation is the the greatest thing to point out is you can this conversation is encapsulated not at the shot that Kyrie made at the end of the game, but the way that the Cavs played for the full duration of Game Seven, wherein they never sped up the game. Not once they played every possession slow because they knew that in the 48 minutes, every possession mattered because the Golden State Warriors, like you alluded to, are want to run teams out of the building when you let the middle of the game get loose or the start of the game get loose. It's not just the end of the game that matters. It's the whole game. And the reason why the Cavs played so slow was so that they could manage every single possession against the Warriors. And ultimately, yes, Kyrie's shot did them in. But that attention to detail and the reverence for every possession that, you know, when you're alluding to Kobe versus Steph, isn't there, that reverence is what actually won the game for the Cavs. The ability to pay attention to every single possession against a Warriors team that can just go gung-ho on you at any point in time in the game. They were famous for their third quarter blowouts where it made it so that Steph Curry didn't even have to play fourth quarters. That reverence is what changed it. And I think that reverence is what fans need to have if they want to appreciate the conversation that you and KD never had. That type yeah. of thing. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with that. And I, I just to come back to the whole Kobe versus Steph thing, I think like the difference between the two largely lies in the fact that if... Kobe was one of the best players in NBA history at creating offense at an incredibly high volume. Like, a volume that most players don't even want to touch. And doing it at slightly above league average efficiency. And that makes, when I say slightly above league average, that to some people that sounds like a negative. But I actually really respect how hard that is to do. Because that's really hard. Steph doesn't create offense at that the same volume. But Steph creates offense at a reasonably high volume at a historically high efficiency. And, 
you know, he's the only player in NBA history ever to lead the league both in relative true shooting percentage and scoring. Nobody else has ever done that. And that's, like, that is incredible. And I think that plus the way Steph has changed basketball is why I would rank him higher. Also, just for the listeners, explain, walk through relative true shooting percentage so that it's not just seen as an analytic, just like this ghost number. First of all, true shooting percentage and effective field goal percentage aren't analytics. Correct. Uh, Effective field goal goal percentage is field goal percentage that accounts for the fact that a three-point shot is more valuable than a two-point shot. So it just accounts for the fact that when you make a three, you score more points. True shooting percentage takes that and also accounts for shooting free throws. So they're just an attempt to encapsulate all the aspects of scoring into field goal percentage. Relative true shooting percentage is a player's true shooting percentage relative to league average. So it's how good they are relative to the era that they played in. And that's just because, you know, there's a lot of perception that scoring and defense have gotten better or worse over time. So we use relative true shooting percentage so that we're accounting for those differences. The interesting part of that is league-wide effective field goal percentage actually hasn't changed that much over the last, like, 20, 30 years because defense generally has evolved at about the same rate as offense. But we still try to account for that when we look at that number. Any last uh, comments, RE, this uh, conversation? I... It's an interesting conversation, and it's a conversation that, like, I would say people have to come into it with some respect for the fact that it takes nuance to fully understand it, and that's part of why it's so ill-fit for Twitter. Because on Twitter, we like to try to fit our points into 280 characters, and most of the time, you know, people on Twitter are trying to win one up over the person they're talking to in those 280 characters. So you can't explain a complicated concept and win the argument in that space. And that's part of why this ends up getting so emotional and ends in ad hominem attacks. But it really is an interesting discussion, and I wish we could have it more often and give it the respect that it deserves. That's that's why I wanted to talk about it with you. So we could we could live out that uh, that scenario. Next thing we're going to talk about, Anthony, is uh, the Twitter questions. And welcome back. Still joined by Anthony Doyle after our long, nuanced analytics conversation. And now ready to answer your Twitter questions. The first one from Jeff Lowe, at Lowe underscore Jeff. Always asks questions for the podcast. An avid listener, so thanks, Jeff. He asks, with many thinking the Raptors will struggle offensively, who has the potential to be a real surprise off of the bench? Anthony. I'll give you two answers for this one. Um, my first answer is the obvious one that everybody's talking about, which is Matt Thomas. He's a great shooter who, you know, was lighting the league on fire in Europe from long distance. People talk about his numbers a lot. And I think the bench is really going to need that presence. So I think there's he's going to have lots of chances and looking at the numbers looking at the film i think he's probably going to have games where he's really great off the bench my other answer will be chris boucher 
I really think the Raptors believe in his, him. I think they really want him to develop into the league. And I think they're going to try to give him sort of like a young Pascal Siakam role where he gets lots of opportunities to shoot open threes, where he gets some opportunity to, to try his own game off the dribble and he gets to be a presence in transition. And I think he's got a great game for that role. Yeah, that's a good point. I think, well, if the Raptors bench is going to try to run, which I think they will, Boucher getting out in transition, that could be six to eight easy points if he's an avid runner every game. So, yeah, I really like that pick. And Matt Thomas, I think, is is the natural one because Troy Daniels, Wayne Ellington, Steve Novak, whoever, there's been long, there's a long standing relationship between elite shooters and nice niche pockets on bench units. And I think Marco Bellinelli is another one. And also that those guys typically do really well the longer they stay with the team. So Matt Thomas, the longer it goes on, the more familiar he gets. I think the the better he'll do on the bench. That's what I think. And the next Twitter question from hmm underscore really. What would need to happen this season for the Raptors to repeat? This question is asked every single podcast and I'm interested to see what you think. I it's a lot. Um Kyle Lowry and Mark Gasol need to not decline. They need to have really not prime seasons, but they need to be as good as they were last year throughout the playoffs. In addition, Pascal Siakam needs to make a leap. OG Ananobi needs to bring back the defense from two th- two seasons ago and be a plus shooter. Norman Powell needs to be a comfortable fit in that starting lineup. Um, Fred Van Vliet needs to be great again, and they need two or th- they need probably need two other guys aside from Fred Van Vliet and Serge Ibaka off the bench to take a significant step forward to fit in defensively and to give some offensive contributions in the playoffs. That's a lot. That's tons. Um, I think, yeah, it's you need every player who is on the roster. You need them to get to the playoffs, A, and then B, you need them to sustain their greatest performance of all time all at the same point in time over the duration between 16 to 30 games. That's, that's how you do it. And whether that's realistic, I don't really know. Injuries can come into play. But even then, that's a long list of people that have to have maladies and things happen for the Raptors to get anywhere close. I just, I think the right idea for fans this year is where we started this podcast off is to remember we won last year. Think about how exciting the team will be this year and the young guys and maybe don't expect a repeat. What do you think, Anthony? Yeah, I agree with that. I think we're probably looking at you know, 2021 is is the year that they're building for right now. And I, you know, not just that one free agent we always talk about, but it's a great free agent crop. The Raptors still have cap space. I think they have to do two things between now and then. They have to remain good enough that they look attractive to free agents, and they have to retain that flexibility. And as long as they do both of those things, there's the real chance that another window opens up at that point. I have one more question for you. Is Kyle Lowry a Hall of Famer? Yes or no? Yes. Perfect. <laughs> Thank you for that. Do you have uh, Do you have anything coming down the pipe you want to tell the listeners about? Anything like that? 
I'm working on some preseason stuff. One thing that I, I'm writing about right now that's been really interesting to me is I'm writing about the load management last year from the Raptors. I know Kawhi's gone, but I'm still writing about the way they handled that, the way they had that record, what that record meant to that team, and sort of trying to take that to project forward somewhat. And that's something I want to get out this week. Um, I'm going to be trying to write a lot more as we head into the preseason, as the season gets going. I'm excited about this year. I'm looking forward to it. And I'm excited about what we've got coming on Raptors Republic. Uh, we can always count on you and Lewis to get into the weeds on this stuff. I'm always excited when you guys come out with something because I always know that there's going to be some numbers in there that inform me going forward. So I'm looking forward to your, your load management piece. Is there anything else you want to say to the listeners before we get out of here? Uh, well, thank you for having me on, Samson, and uh, thank you to everybody listening. All right. And uh, to everyone listening, whether it's at night or in the morning, have a blessed day, Anthony. Thank you so much for coming on once again. And goodbye. Need an extra hand with dinner? Just ask your connected home device to fill your pasta pot. And Delta Faucet Voice IQ technology will fill it with the perfect amount of water. Visit deltafaucet.com slash voice IQ to discover more. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year, automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply. At ADP, we work with more than 860,000 companies worldwide. That gives us a pretty good idea of how to help businesses grow stronger. Whether it's through data insights that help you make informed decisions about building a team that works better as a team. Or by keeping you ahead of thousands of changing regulations so you can keep ahead of everything else. Like building that better team. Grow stronger with ADP. HR talent, time, and payroll.